I'm Dima Ballin, and this is The Rear Window. Sometimes, reality is the strangest fantasy of all. The films of Michelangelo Antonioni speak every language. This is his first in English. What's your name? What do they call you in bed? Vanessa Redgrave, David Hemmings, and Sarah Miles. Blow Up is the most critically acclaimed film of the year and winner of two Academy Award nominations, including Best Director. Antonioni's camera never flinches at love without meaning, murder without guilt, at the dazzle and the madness of London today. You are an eyewitness to what's happening in a world where the beautiful and the bizarre take on new forms and hold new fascinations. Blow Up is an astonishing glimpse of today seen through Antonioni's camera, his color, his London, first English language film. I thought you were supposed to be in Paris. I am. Someone's been killed. Yeah, I was right. I want you to see the cause. Blow Up. The Carlo Ponder production. We are here to discuss Michelangelo Antonioni's 1966 Blow Up, uh, the first film he shot in English. And I'm here with my regular partners in crime, David Kleiler and J.P. Ouellette. Jean-Paul uh, Jean Ouellette, sorry. <laughs> uh, David's been teaching the film for several decades now at Babson College and other places. And uh, J.P. Oh, has well. an article published in McGill's Encyclopedia of Cinema on the film. So this is going to be a lively and hopefully contentious discussion. So I want to say off the top that Blow Up is a film I really love, as I love a lot of other Antonioni's films, especially La Ventura. And I'm not entirely sure why I love it. The film is a bit of a mystery to me, and perhaps that's the way it was intended. So um, so what is the film about? <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> it's about this loser photographer who uh, uh, bungles a chance to solve a murder. Uh, let's see. It's about, <laughs> well, it's, it, it, it's a lot of things, yeah. um, but especially, yes, I'm not sure he, he, a successful photographer in the, who's in this specific world of fashion and excitement and modism and, and hipsterism, um, who wants more. And every time he comes across it, he doesn't know how to break out of who he is and capture and catch the real world. Yeah, if he's uh, the degree to which he's perhaps not, he's not a loser by any stretch of the imagination, but he's trying to hold on to something that's real. And presumably, uh, as a photographer, there's an underlying metaphor in the film. Uh, he's in the business where he can capture reality, and the more he tries to catch it, the farther away it gets. And uh, with the central thing of the murder, the, the photographs he takes where he thinks he's found a murder, 
the more he blows them up and tries to get closer to the truth, the more abstract the, p the pictures become. And there's that underlying paradox of the whole film. You see, on the one hand, the film is a murder mystery, but it's a murder mystery that doesn't get solved. On the other hand, it's an existential fable. Um, it's got a lot of things going on in it. It's, I think it's one of the most uh, wonderfully textured films of the uh, 60s and a, and a masterpiece of filmmaking. I think both JP and I are on the same page with this, that very few films of that period make such great use of the tools that are unique to cinema to be able to get across what it's about. Oh, by far. In, in many ways, for a filmmaker, this is sort of a textbook on what film can do by using all of the visual elements and uh, everything from, from color and space to, to movement uh, to sound. Each one of them helps tell this story. And beautifully. I mean, it's a, so well worked out that every single artisan in this film, not only the director, added immense depth to the film. What is interesting in terms of this, by you're emphasizing that, the film is close to being, the dialogue in the film is rarely important. Uh, almost no expository dialogue for the first 20, 25 minutes of the film. So the conventional ways a story gets told by getting clear pictures of plot, character, what's going on here. Very little is known. And uh, Dima, I think you said, you know, the film's a mystery. Well, I think mystery is the point. It's all very, very en enigmatic film. We, um, there are all kinds of ways we, what's going on here. And I think when the film first came out in 1966, people expected a film that was more story driven. It's not that there's not a story, but that the conventional ways in which a story, uh, uh, or, or story arcs are told weren't here in this film. This is why, for those of us who appreciate the film as a film, wow, didn't know a film story could be told this way. And well, it's, it's a puzzle film in many ways, because, yeah, we've talked about puzzle films. Yeah. Uh, and he's made them. And he has definitely made them. For me, this is probably one of his clearest films <laughs> as far as, there's. I don't find it to be that obscure. I think it's very, very carefully told, and that all of the things you need to know are in the film. Now, uh Somebody mentioned, and I think it was Dima had mentioned that the the, the original screenplay um, had a longer conversation in the restaurant with Ron, the agent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and the trick about Ron is Ron is, as you say, the only expository character seemingly in the entire film, and apparently in the screenplay, he actually had a longer discussion that explained the film, which. Antonio d decided he did not want people, he did not want to explain the film. He wanted the audience to have to do what Thomas does, try to discover the film. I've got something fab for the end, in a park. I only took them this morning, I'll get them later on today. It's very peaceful, very still. And the rest of the book will be pretty violent, so I think it's best to end it like that. Hmm? Yeah, that's best. Rings true. I've gone off London this week. Why? Doesn't do anything for me. <laughs> yeah. I'm fed up with those bloody bitches. Wish I had tons of money. Then I'd be free. Free to do what? Free like him. Well, that's certainly the audience does have to work at this. Uh, and 
well, the other thing that was sort of cut out from the original script is something that could have gone more melodramatic. The, uh, the triangular relationship uh, Sarah Miles is living with in some cohabitation thing, I don't know whether they're married or not, with the painter. And yet uh, there's clearly a chemistry between her and the uh, David Hemmings character who in the script is named, but in the film is not. The, his name is Thomas. Hmm? Right. His name yeah. is in the script, not in the film. Yeah, we never hear his name in the film. Uh, which is another curious part of the enigma of the entire film. Do we hear anybody's name in the film except the agent, maybe? Bill. Ron, Bill, Bill the painter and Ron the agent are the two and names that we hear. And I think everybody else is totally unknown mm. and often on purpose and it, it, it which kind of serves to emphasize the disconnected nature that all these people share true absolutely and also the abstract world in which they live and of course it's a film that is in its own way even though uh you got purples and you got a lot it's a very colorful film a very color conscious film um in many ways you know color-coded film Yet, what is interesting, we never in the entire film, as it exists in, in its release form, we never see any real connection between the characters. They, sometimes it comes close to, uh, with, uh, say, uh, the Vanessa Redgrave character, who's also unnamed, and uh, the, uh, the photographer. But even when she offers to have sex with him, he, he says, put your clothes back on. I mean, there's, there's, there's... Well, he gets distracted again. I mean, the, the one of the interesting things about the story is... Ken Thomas, first, the, obviously the first one is, this is a story of, about photography, including cinematography. Yes. Well, because in many ways, Antonioni is probably speaking from his own vision of how well he sees and relates reality to an audience. Oh, you're totally right there, because, because he's a photographer, and there's no question about it, but this camera, especially the scene where he's photographing um, Barushka, mm. uh, there's no question... There's a voyeuristic aspect. There's a sexual thing. Clearly, the camera is in some ways a phallic symbol. Uh, but what is interesting in terms of understanding the film, there's not just his camera, uh, the photographer's camera, but there's Antonioni's camera. Correct. And, and, and in many ways, I think Antonioni sees himself as Thomas. Yes. That, that when in constructing this story, you know, La Ventura is about the actress. And, and in fact, the story actually came from the actress. It was a day-day experience that they turned into a movie. Whereas this is really about Antonioni talking about his relationship to the world as a, as a filmmaker, not only as a cameraman, but just as a filmmaker. How much, how close does he get to reality? Well, you talk about the place where he allows, he gets himself distracted, uh, whereas Love and Sure takes place over a period of time, but you still have, not unlike here, there's a mystery. The woman disappears in La Ventura. Right. We never find out what happened. They go in search of her, and if you're going to, a, and it's, here's a film called La Ventura, and it's an adventure that never happens, and uh, at least on a, on a plot level. Well, but once again, wasn't the adventure the search? The, the, the trick is you don't, the end of the journey doesn't matter. And that's true. Of, uh, and, and in many ways, this is Thomas's search. The mystery is what Thomas is searching for and it's the journey of searching for it that's almost more important than the actual answer to the mystery. That's exactly it. But to a certain extent, the search leads him nowhere, which is in many ways I think the point of the film. The search in La Ventura leads nowhere. 
Well, except I, I, I personally think he comes to a bit of self-understanding at the end of the film. Well, we might disagree in terms of whether. Uh, well, uh, you have a tendency to see films more positively, and you know, <laughs> in you know, more happy endings. And I see films with totally depressing endings. Mm. And in this case, where in his failure to bring order to his own life, to make the discovery, to uh, his failure to capture reality, uh, he then participates in the fantasy tennis match. We hear them, he looks on, and we hear, uh, it's one of, it's not only is there a point of view camera, but there's point of view sound. Mm -hmm. uh, for those of you who haven't seen the film, the film ends with a bunch of mimes uh, playing tennis. At first, uh, all we hear is the sound of their feet on the, on the, on the pavement. And, but then when he, the fake tennis ball goes out of the uh, court, he participates in their fantasy at that point, as opposed to scoffing at their, the lack of reality of it. And he throws the ball back in. At that moment, we hear the sound of the ball and its point of view sound from him. He, he's accepted the fact he can't capture reality. And then the very last shot in the film, apart from the fact that he's looking on at them, then picks up his camera, his eyes go downcast, and then he disappears from the screen. Uh, I see that as a kind of a, like his uh, uh, sort of a, a giving up on his effort to be able to capture reality as we know it. But there's another aspect to this too, in that there's there's three color elements. One is the world, the real world, is incredibly black and white in this film. Mm -hmm. It's drab, gray, hard, cold black, white of the nun. There's this drab, unpleasant world that he's where he starts in, and and we see him wandering through. The thing that's different here. And this is a comment about the times, is these kids bring color to the world. Mm -hmm. They're the only people who walk around wearing colors. You know, everybody else, everybody else on the street is just this drab, post-war, unhappy group of people. So that there is an element that these kids are living, yes, in a fantasy, but they're living in a more pleasant fantasy in many ways than the rest of the world is. And if you really want to get into the rest of the world, there's murder, there's poverty, there's homelessness, right? And so one does question, do these kids really want to enter that world? Well, the, uh, since the film is, it is in, for the most part, a point of view film, it's, it, it's, it's wonderfully unified. It all takes place within 24 hours. And it's basically his quest. Mm. Um, and if there's a place where there's some meaningful dialogue, the painter who does sort of like abstract things and he tells, uh, well, the character that in the screenplay is named, known, known as Thomas, our hero, that, oh, look, I, every now and then I see this line and it all hangs together. And when Thomas is bro uh, blowing up the, uh, the scenes in the park where there may or may not have been a murder, and there clearly was a murder, they become more and more abstract. But it's something that, by his focusing on that, is helping him bring something together to make sense. And right. That's, and... And, but it is interesting that you're right about the black and white because the reality thing uh, 
is in the book he's trying to publish, which is all in black and white. And it's mostly images of people who are the destitute, the poor. And this is the, the book he wants to make. But uh, he also does say, I want to end the film in color. I mean, I want to yes. end the book in color. And he wants to end with something positive. It's going to be serene. Uh, and, and then that turns out to be not true. He's really photographed a murder. Right. And uh, my question is this. This is a point of view film, with the exception of the beginning before we're introduced to him. How reliable a narrator is he? How much of this film is reality versus his perception of reality? Well, actually, I'm not even sure that matters because that is part of the theme. We see it. That's why Antonioni's camera is so important here. We see him, and clearly what we see him do is the futility of trying to capture reality. But the issue of whether he's reliable or not What's reliable, maybe, is Antonioni's camera. And don't forget, there is, I think, an analogy here. Just as Thomas, the David Hemmings character, has trouble of in capturing reality, and we have all the way through the film, when we think we're seeing something real, then it goes away. We have it with the, the shot of Vanessa Redgrave. He sees her from his car, and now you see it, now you don't. Where does she go? That could be real, it could be fantasy, but we don't know. And then you have the whole scene that follows that, when he goes into the club and the value of this, oh, you have this, the car being broken apart and they, they, oh my God, everybody's screaming for this, you know, the, 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 the guitar. The guitar. And then he gets it, it's his value, and then he tosses it in the street and what is this thing? It's a piece of junk. Mm. All the way through the thing, there and are shifting the perceptions. And it, it's tightly structured, but that's, that's the kind of way that Antonioni has structured the film. And that we see him, uh, we see him for what he is. Well, I think as... For me, I think the film and his journey is reliable. Yes. I think it's his perception of the world that's unreliable. Yeah, that's it. That's but we're what not, I'm asking. But we're not yeah. asked to... Well, no, but I, but I don't think... What, I don't think the film shows... I don't think the film cheats in trying to make believe stuff. I think it's actually showing you what is. You know, there was a murder. I mean, I truly believe there was. It, it oh, wouldn't yes, make any course. point if there wasn't. No, 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 a of course. Yeah, there was a murder. That's, and it yes. had to be a murder. So that's reliable. But the body disappears mysteriously. And not mysterious. Just like the woman disappears. Just like. Well, so um, does. But so does the. So does all the the blobs out of his apartment. Yep. So, but that's not unreliable. That's real. No, no, no. That's not and unreliable. The body, and them taking the body away while he's not there is very reliable. Yeah, I think uh, that's that's nicely said. Uh, and again, all these ways in which what he thinks is real. See, we're never asked to believe his point of view. That's why, why I sort of question your question, Dima. Because we're never asked to believe his perception of things. Mm -hmm. uh, the filmmaker's asking us to like, see this character and see what he's going through. So he's not the one who's telling us, Tom's not the one who's telling us the story. It's the filmmaker who's telling us the story. But, but we're this is a point it, of view film, though. it through Tom's mind. Yes. This is a point of view film, though. So you're saying that there's something outside of his point of view? No, there's no. The trick is that there is there is our point of view, and the filmmaker gives us yes, his, our point of view because Tom does. You know, it's like it's like the idea of color. I mean, the ma two major colors that are played with symbolically in this are green and purple, mm -hmm. and constantly, and like the doors of his um, dark room. I mean, one is green, one is purple. The f 
The rug in his living room is green. The backdrop in his living room is purple. It's a and it's played out constantly. The park is green. And the park is very green. And he's wearing a dark green jacket while he's there. But he also has a bluish purplish shirt on. I mean, they pl- it's constantly being played with here. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and purple is the distraction because purple, purple is, is almost always the distraction. Is the unreal. It's the artificial color. Correct. And the green is the real color. And but you get con- but the trick is the fun of the film is they he plays with them where in the end Thomas is in a field of green. He sees this as reality, although he disappears. What do you make of what Antonioni does with the other colors? Like uh, he painted uh, the exteriors of some buildings red, if I'm not yeah, mistaken. Yeah, there's a whole batch there's of red whole... buildings. Yes. What's he doing? Well, it's not unusual in filmmaking uh, um, at all. You would know that better than I would. Well, do. I think he's also making a fun, fun but, reference. But why is Each that important other. to him? Well, I think he, personally, I think he's referring to Red Desert. <laughs> what is great so? about Red Desert? What is great about that? Absolutely. Think, because um, there's a lot of places where, again, since this is not a plot driven film, the subject of the scene will leave the frame and will be focusing on something, you know, that he may have painted, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Just as in Red Desert and Passenger, there are similar kinds of uh, things where, wait a minute, I thought we had a story here. Why aren't we following the character? And we're not. Uh, but again, the, the reliable narrator thing, uh, don't forget, there are a couple of places where it's the Antonioni camera is more important than the David Hemmings camera, except for in terms of its symbolic purpose. Mm-hmm. Because uh, apart from the opening scene where the mimes come in and he's not there, then the closing scene, he's in proximity to that. But the other scenes, for example, uh, when the uh, he's not there, when the people come along and they pick up the guitar thing and he's just thrown away. Right. The guitar hand. And that's Antonioni's comment. You know, the, the, the relative is all a great value earlier in the, in the sequence, but no value at all at the end of the sequence. But he's not the one who get, understands that. I mean, even though he's the one who tosses it away. But yeah, the film is definitely making a, a series of comments. And this partly probably has something to do with adding a British playwright who adds, who lives in this world. Um, and to some extent, Antonioni in Italy must have started to see this as well by 66, um, that there are social comments about the life of young people constantly through this film. He is definitely commenting mm-hmm. on the 60s, whether it's settling the camera and watching the dullness of four people smoking dope, um, watching the vagueness of Verushka who has no idea that she's not in Paris at the party. Um, <laughs> watching the, the dull faces of the kids at the, at the nightclub where the, band, where the Yardbirds are playing. I mean, those kids are not enjoying themselves. They're just sitting there mindlessly listening to the music where the band is having a good time.
It was fun to suddenly see uh, Jimmy Page. And Jeff Beck. And Jeff Beck, yep. Well, that is a part of the fun thing from, you know, from a nostalgia point of view. But the whole business of the smoking dope, the uh, not knowing what your art really means when you paint it, uh, of, um, of being totally jaded by these beautiful models, of finding a, a, an object that everybody fights for, but it really means nothing. These are all comments on the times, as opposed to, and seemingly very specific to that era. You're, you're right about the specificity, but what it is true is also universal in terms of his films. I mean, it's interesting about the color. You know, it, La Ventura is, you know, set on a beginning part, is set on a volcanic island that's extinct. So it's, you know, it's... it's Black ash. Yeah, and it's... Then you have Red Desert, where, you know, you've got his films like The Passenger and Red Desert, where the desert is clearly, you know, things are, are, are sterile and things like that. So what he does here, that's what I like about the use of color. He has all this lush green... And it's still as sterile as the desert was, uh, and and it's um, so there's nothing like you expect. The, the, I think people who see the film for the first time uh, really do say, "Oh my God, that green is great! It's very lush." And but the but in terms of what goes on, it's not. There's no growth. Yeah, there's a murder takes place there. An awful relationship takes place there, and so nothing. Meaningful happens just because the place is green, which we the you know use green fire that's growth and springtime and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not. It just functions the same way as his deserts do in other films. Although what's good, he is playing the real, unreal game with it as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, and it is definitely yes. It, as far as black for love and uh, for love and Tura, mm -hmm. red for red desert, and this one is definitely green. Right. Yeah. Purple plays into it, and, and, amusingly enough. I'm, I'm sure uh, Fellini must have freaked because Fellini, <laughs> Fellini could not stand the color purple. In fact, there was an actress who showed up in a purple dress, and he would never talk to her again. I didn't know that. Yeah. He he's terrified of the of the color, where obviously Antonioni enjoys the color because it is an unnatural color. I was reading. Um an analysis of the film where Blow Up was compared to uh, the collages of Robert Reichenberg. Uh, you know, Reichenberg used existing photos to create these artworks. He would paint over them and, you know, he uh, did all this really interesting kind of pop stuff. And the connection that was being put forward is that the photographer, uh, Thomas, is trying to see reality through photographs and the more he does that the further away from reality he gets like you said the uh, uh, the more he blows up the photos the more abstract they become the more pixelated they become uh is the process itself getting in his way i think that's exactly the comment that, that mm -hmm. antonio is saying is that the instant you the instant you hold the camera between yourself and reality what you end up is looking at a byproduct a picture instead of what was really there. Yeah. Which uh, is what pop culture is all about, though, isn't it? Very much. Yeah, he, and he is saying that with the, you know, in his view of the kids in the world. But he's not, I don't think he's that negative about it. I always go for the negative. Well, I, uh, no, obviously, <laughs> let's put yes, it this Yes, we way. know that. Is there anybody in this entire movie who is happy? No. Um, even the little girls who come in and, and romp around with them, the camera... You talk about not getting directly involved with reality. 
mean, you, you, there's no way that you cannot look at that scene with Perushka where he's not a substitute for fucking. Right. And he doesn't get laid in the 24 hours. Uh, he's got plenty of opportunities <laughs> for it, but he doesn't. And so there he is separate from direct engagement uh and maybe that is well we're a, not sure he didn't get laid <laughs> but we don't we, it's, we don't know we don't know well, they are putting they are putting his socks back on <laughs> well the way he the way he kind of looks at his wife getting laid with his friend that kind of says to me that he's not part of that whole well th th this brings up one of to me the most fascinating part of this entire film is that there is a love relationship going on. But it's, yes, it's unconsummated. We don't know the relationship between David Hemmings Thomas and Sarah Miles, the girl next door. They could be married. They could be exes. They could just be neighbors. But there is definitely a unique connection between the two of them. Well, it's interesting you say that, JP. Uh, it fits into the old pattern of things not being explained. If that speech that you talked about of uh, Ron uh, is too expository and gives away too much meaning, if the Sarah Miles part was cut way down from what it was in the original screenplay, that means all that, that whole relationship is, I think, as with the rest of the film, unexplained. We can except, speculate. Except there is one central moment between the two of them at the end of the film, and it's, and it's a powerful moment when she comes over yeah. After he's been watching her and Bill screwing up, screwing, and she's looking at him as she, you know, as she enjoys sex or not enjoying, or sex. not enjoying sex, or wishing it was with with Thomas, she comes over to his place in that fetching outfit, in the fetching outfit, and actually wants to have a meaningful conversation with him. She has something yes. she needs to talk to him about, and he fails. Yeah. And that, I think, is such an important moment in the entire That's film. Because it, it, it is about his inability co to connect with reality, with, with real things. This is, their relationship obviously is very special and very unique. He's jaded by every other model, whether they're little girls or famous models. She's special in his life. And he doesn't figure out how to deal with it. You ever think of leaving him? No, I don't think so. I saw a man killed this morning. Where? Shot. Some sort of park. Are you sure? He's still there. Who was he? Someone. How did it happen? I don't know. I didn't see. You didn't see? No. Shouldn't you call the police? That's the body. Looks like one of Bill's paintings. Well, it's another one of those things where he um, uh, he just drops the ball. And so, uh, I mean, had he acted 
you know, more logical way about the body re reporting it. And somebody says there, from, did you report it to the police? Doesn't, you know, he, he wants to photograph it. Right. Uh, so whatever happened to the body, which we never know, he never knows, uh, but whatever it is, where he could have taken more direct action or directly, you know, um, listen to what Sarah Miles would have to say about, you know, I want to talk to you about that. Because the implication, she sort of wants to talk to him about his, her relationship with Bill. And uh, that's, again, it's never said. There's no expository dialogue. It's just guesswork. Right. Which is, I think, part of the reason I like the film. So there's so much that's left unexplained. Whereas I think the frustrating thing for some people who saw it in 1966 and 67, what the hell is this? Why did, well, whatever happened, was there a murder or what? You know, that kind of thing. I mean, I mean, that, it did frustrate people when it came out. Uh, but it was still a successful film. Yes, it was. On the art house circuit, it was great. <laughs> and uh, certainly uh, for people, I mean, that's why what you said about it, wherever Antonioni goes with his camera, he sees sort of a vacuousness and emptiness. Then mm -hmm. film to film. Right. Uh, so this time he looks at uh, pop culture in England. Yeah, that's... <laughs> Uh, whatever. Mm -hmm. In spite of his use of color, that's the colorful thing. There's no joy in uh, the Yardbirds concert. There's no... Right. Uh, yeah, his landscapes in La Ventura and in London are, and in the park are equally desolate. Yeah. Which is what you're saying. Uh, well, his main characters are always desolate. But the space that they occupy... Uh, because uh, I believe his films are very much uh, about the characters and how they move through space. That, that well, but once again, you also have remember he he enters the park. But if you actually look at where he lives, what he drives, and where he would like to be, they're lively, filled, interesting places. I mean, the interior of the Bentley, the uh, the interior of his living room, which is so amazingly shot. Oh. With sharp angles the and angle, things in oh. the way, and and obstructions, and and you know heads mm -hmm. moving along the ceiling, you know it's it's beautiful, and, but it's very intimate in its own way. Although once again, so the other is one... so is ironically the scene in the park. The scene in the park is isolating on the one hand, but very intimate on the other. Well, it's intimate because it's voyeuristic. It's very ironic. Right? We, we think there's a we think there's a love story here. And he's voyeuristically watching it. So it is that, yes, there, it's both intimate in that we know we're watching something that's intimate. Well, and the intimacy is achieved without hardly any close-ups or, or any close-ups. The, the first time we get a close-up in that whole sequence is when she comes after him uh, to, to grab the camera. Right, right. Uh, yes. And, uh, but you're right. So therefore, you know, on the one hand, it's not, you know, it's a love affair, but we don't get the feeling of a love affair. Uh this old guy and this younger woman, uh, but it's all, it's all, again, that's where your point of view comes to. It's, it's a distancing here, perhaps voyeuristic, whatever. Well, it's, it, we know, we, from the moment we meet the two characters, in fact, it's fascinating because we meet the two characters in a camera pan that mm -hmm. barely shows them. Right. Um, there's a, there's a shot down near the tennis courts in the, in the big open flat space where, um, there are actual tennis players, and Thomas is watching the tennis players. And the camera pans across the scene and momentarily catches Vanessa Redgrave and uh, Ronan... Um, Whatever his name is, yeah. O'Rourke. Uh, for just a moment. And just literally, and then moves off to look at the buildings in the distance. 
And the next moment we see them is we know mm -hmm. it's clandestine. We know it's secretive because she's pulling O'Rourke, this older man, up into the bushes. So it's obviously clandestine, which is why he follows. And he, he runs to sneak around to see what it's about. Why and, is her lover an older man? Is this a generational thing? Too? No, I think it's, it, this is the, re, the real world, <laughs> the mystery that Thomas will never figure out. And of course, you know, it's kind of thing, it's, it's extremely conventional. I mean, good God, demon, older men, younger women. Yeah, but right. you don't think it has anything to do with the, uh, because the film is about the youth generation of the time. I don't think it plays a role. And he says to her, you know, your boyfriend's a bit past it, right? Right. That, but he doesn't know. But the other thing you get... See, once again, he's guessing. Well, no, he's not guessing that her boyfriend's past it. I mean, he, he is... No, we're guessing that it's, his, it's her boyfriend. <laughs> See that's well, the trick is we don't know that, and I wish I I wish I had the. I think film it's pretty obvious though. When she approaches him, he mentions politicians. In in the he this guy could be a politician. Yeah, he that, looks like one. And the whole idea that it could be a, a setup, uh, uh, but we don't know. Just one of the things. Okay, <laughs> how many? I mean, God, how many films? How many people's lives? Younger woman, older man, and po a powerful person. They have an affair. I mean, I mean, it, it could be any. We've seen this motif like a gazillion times. There's nothing even to think about. It. It's just like very conventional what they have here. Well, it's we'll, also we'll, conventional in mystery stories. Yeah, very much so. Very much of a noir kind of thing. Right. Uh, trophy wife, trophy girlfriend. You know, I mean, give me a break. I mean, this, this is almost like it's almost like a cliche. There's nothing to be made out of it. It's just there. Well, no, but I think that he's playing with. It. Yeah, I, I, the, I think the you're screenwriters right. are playing with us. Yes, and they're giving us. I mean, all the way through. That's, again, what I like about the film is they are so specific to give us clues that we can do things with. That we really can't do anything with. Well, well one, of my, one of the secret ones, and it, it talk about rear window. What's the photograph, the gigantic photograph in his studio? Funny, I don't think I know. I don't Me know. neither. It's a guy parachuting down oh, from right. the sky. Which is so ruined in its own way, and I, there's another one. There's two, two, two gigantic mm -hmm. photographs, and they're you know they're probably five feet tall photographs mm -hmm. up on the wall, and they're both action shots like this, having nothing to do with what's really going on in the studio. You know, it's it's sort of like that's the you know that's again the desire for something bigger, something more real. Is there an element of control here versus lack of control? Because uh, we see him first in his studio he's um he's doing this uh, photo shoot with the models and he's very much in control he he positions them exactly the way he wants right uh starting with the feathers to shoot right. Marushka, lining them up and, and right, right, them right, right, right. The close your eyes versus um, versus the moment he gets to the park things are no longer in his control but I think that's the, the, that's part of what he's looking for. And I think that's why he, he treats everybody so badly in the studio, is that he's jaded. He does very this every jaded. day. It's boring to him. He's very good at it. I'm sure, he, obviously, he's very well paid if he's driving around in his Bentley. You know, he can, how, how many different bottles of liquor were open in his studio? He went from bottle of liquor to bottle of liquor to... to More than you guys have. Uh, <laughs> 
Well, I, yeah, he he was drinking first thing in the morning, but I guess everybody in that film was drinking first thing in the morning. Yeah. The, uh, uh, and of course, there is a looking at London, even when he goes there, even with his Bentley, he's talking to his agent about wanting to buy property or something like that. Right. I guess you're able to buy, maybe buy the... Uh, the they were the trying, yeah, they store. wanted to buy the antique store. And you talk about dialogue, there's so many non sequiturs. Nepal is all antiques. I mean, give me a break. <laughs> Does any of those things say anything uh, about, except, except on a more metaphoric level? And well, but then once again, he's playing. He's they're playing with this whole idea that youth thinks of the world in a whole different way. It's so you know, funny. The, for her, Nepal is new, but it's filled with antiques. And uh, but then again, the change in even the area. Who wants to buy the place? There are queers and poodles, and it's so funny. The place that's closest to being that way here in Boston is Chelsea right now. Mm-hmm. You can see, wait a minute, the number of hair salons, the number of gay men with poodles, you know, that kind of thing. In Chelsea, the the the, uh, the property values are escalating because it's become a place where... Uh, 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 well, that's why that's why Thomas is saying, let's buy it now. Yes, it's exactly. Gonna get, it's going to very quickly get expensive. And I, I sort of like, how many places have gone that way, um, you know, Took longer for a place like the South End to do that, but uh, but yeah. Uh, but once again, this is this is part of that post-war symbolism of how the world is changing, how these kids have changed this world. That this is not the 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 drab England of the past 10, 15 years. Mario. Clearly, I mean, there's an emptiness throughout all of Antonioni's film, uh, a spiritual, personal uh, emptiness that's there. And he just does it here. And clearly, um, I don't think we look at this film and say, oh, God, I wish I were in London at that period of time. It doesn't look like, you know, it's not portrayed in the kind of way that would make us think fun. And again, you know, it is a point of view film, but it's a character, it is, you know, an analysis of a character. thing is, too, I think he pulls it off brilliantly, in spite of the fact the central character is not really likable. Yeah. Even when he says, the two little girls come in who want, to get, want him to photograph him, and he's such a control freak. Uh, right after we've seen him have them close their eyes, you know, Verushka, all the stuff he does with Verushka, and he says, I don't have time to do whatever it is. And he does that whole thing with his coin on his knuckles. He just prolongs that. He prolongs right. that. Right. I'm too busy. And he's too, yeah, right. And he's doing this thing. <laughs> I'm too I mean, the thing is just, there's just so many brilliant things like that going on throughout the film, mm-hmm. which have nothing to do with expository dialogue. Right. Uh, and, you know, but, I mean, I, but once again, yeah, I, I tend to disagree. And I think this is maybe when in the era in which this was made, why I was so impressed by it, is that Thomas is jaded. Yeah. And, he, and he's a bit vapid. Mm-hmm. The being jaded is not the worst thing. He's not evil. He's trying. He's trying, no, and right. that's what makes us care about him and his journey, even though he fails. Well, this is where uh, where we you know, only slight difference in the way we interpret the ending, because I find the ending really 
not moving, but something when he tosses the ball back and gives into the illusion as opposed gives up on trying to capture reality. Right. And say the way I read the ending is that he's given up on what the film's been about. I want to do something that's true. And he lives in this artificial life, a totally artificial life. Right. And he's trying to do that the book he's trying to do with Ron, he wants to have something that's true. And that he even says that if there is something that's a line that if you're you know underlining I want to do something that's true, and you know, uh, he 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 does that. Uh, he doesn't go on with it. It's not a philosophical debate, mm-hmm. and Ron's stoned most of the time anyway. So uh, <laughs> it's it makes although it... Ron and Bill, the two guys with names, seem to be the two happiest guys in the movie. <laughs> right. Yeah, and that's great when you go to the the party scene at the end. And you know, oh, just come on and have fun. You know, you just wait. Ron just waves at him and say, "You know, you got to come out." And once again, Thomas is distracted from doing, being the photographer. And then he goes back. The body's gone. Right. Yeah, that's exactly it. And and uh, and yeah, um, I don't remember purple though in that scene, but uh, it, it, there could be on a on a review. Uh, uh, yeah. Well, I'm, I, I don't think I don't think he was trying to overdo the the symbolism of the colors. In fact, I think he was actually playing with the fact that in the end, you know, it for Thomas, it doesn't matter what color it is. He's not going to make it. Well, he didn't, I, he I didn't want to piss that. off Fellini too much. <laughs> well, maybe that. Although, you know, once again, I'm sure Fellini would have been screaming in the theater for the when he saw it. Antonio ah. worked more with, that, with, with Rossellini than with Fellini. Okay, um, we talked about point of view camera work, but this film also has point of view sound. There's an element, the diurgic sound, the fact that most, in fact, technically all of the music in the film is created by actual devices in the scene that makes the music. Putting on the what? music for Vanessa Redgrave and things like that. Well, there's some point of view sound in here, though. No, there, well, no, mean, no, no. But as far as no, the point of view sound is a whole different thing, and that's the there's wind. a very, very specific storytelling element. For example, when he's he's recreating, one of the things one cannot help but notice, almost like a there is almost like a Fellini movie, the sound of the wind in the park. Uh, All right, but let's let's go through the whole sequence then, because actually that's part two, because. So generally, the sound comes from a radio, a band, uh, right? The, you know, somehow that's 80, it comes. That's 90 percent true. Right, a couple of places. Where now, there's a out. couple of places where we cut into a scene, and there's music, especially with the models in the studio, mm-hmm. where suddenly there's music, but we assume somebody put the music on. Right, right. I it, would do that. It's know. not like it's composed to go with the scene or whatever. Right. It's just running music. The place where it becomes POV is the fact that. When he starts blowing up, yes, doing the blow-ups, he puts. We actually see him drop a needle on a Herbie Hancock track on, mm-hmm. on a record, an LP. And as he begins to watch and study the pictures, as something catches his eye, he picks up a magnifying glass, mm-hmm. and the sound goes away. The music just fades out. But the, what comes in? No, not yet, because it fades out. And then very slowly, yes, because what's, what's happening is this is point of view. Mm-hmm. He's no longer listening to the, to the record that's still playing in the room. He's remembering. He's, he's putting himself into the park. And 
slowly the sound of the park takes over and especially the rustling of the leaves which grows and grows as he goes deeper and deeper into to blowing up the pictures and then a little bit later there's actually it's almost like it goes one step beyond when he finds the dead body in the pictures and that's where it almost goes to to me it sounds like a jet airplane going yes. overhead it it probably is still the leaves but they're taken to a level where it is sort of like his aha you know the the mm-hmm. thought balloon appearing over his head is the sound increasing as if it's taken over his his entire being mm-hmm and this is definitely POV stuff. This yes. is yes, this more is more than this. the camera. Uh, it's his camera that he, that with the blow up. And so the, I said, I want to make a distinction between Antonioni's camera and and his uh, and his own camera. But it is interesting that 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 is more of a POV device with the sound than it has been with the camera. Yeah, uh, I mean, clearly we get it with him, with him looking. Mm-hmm. He sees Vanessa Redgrave, and Chad turns around, to, you know, turns around to look again. She's not there. I mean, that's clearly a POV thing. Right. Uh, and uh, again, one of the gazillion things in the film that's not explained, uh, but but uh, it is very real. Yeah, we yeah. all do it. We've all at some point thought we saw somebody approach, and they yeah. weren't there. Either they disappeared, or they left, or they weren't there in the first place. You say I don't think anything that he sees. The only thing I see where there's a, a situation where there's no fantasy scene in the film, really. Um, there are scenes that he's maybe fantasizing about, was romping with the two young girls, but uh, that doesn't count. But uh, the only place where the sound, where the thing is, you know, unreal is is in the studio. I mean, that's no, great. It's also unreal at the end of the film. Yes, of course. <laughs> okay, good point. Yes, absolutely. So, so, uh, and actually, I'm sure if we actually really sat down and there. Oddly enough, there is a co- there is a version of blow up on discs that you can buy, that is the music only. Now it's probably the sound as well, so that you could actually study how beautifully this sound design is. It's gorgeous the whole way through the film. David, you mentioned uh, in our conversation uh, a few days ago a connection with Coppola's The Conversation. Yeah, actually, that's, you, we we started by talking about the, the fact that there, you know, obviously there's blowout, um, which is a, an homage to this film. Yeah, by De Palma. It's a Brian De Palma's film. Yeah, where whereas David very properly mentioned the fact that conversation is in its own way a, a child of this film, if not maybe an homage, but definitely also in, in, terms, in what way? Well, in that that. Um, it is, it's entirely about the perception uh, by, by watching the world as opposed to experiencing the world, your perception is never going to be real. And what is interesting in both films, um, remember when he first sees the gun, he isn't aware of the fact that the gun might have been used. And he calls up Ron and says, I think I, I stopped a murder. And he's wrong about that. Mm-hmm. The murder does happen, and he discovers the murder. What's interesting is in, 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 in the conversation um, with a brilliant performance by Gene Hackman, the idea that as he blows it up, you have the whole, uh, what's the word? That's just, I think he's going to kill us. Right. That the way he acts is a way that causes more harm than good. 
but the, clearly the situation of acting, here you are recording. My business is to photograph. My business is to record. Uh, and then when they get to the truth, there's the question of personal action. Uh, and uh, so there is an analogy. It's not, a, you know, there's no... Coppola's got his own thing with the conversation. Right. But there's clearly an analogy. But the thing with that, uh, the conversation, whereas uh, as he blows up the pictures, pictures become more and more indistinct, and yet the, that process has led him to th having discovered something. He sees the body. On the other hand, as, as uh, the Hackman character in the conversation, as he plays around, he, he does get he gets a piece of dialogue that uh, he's, he's going to try to kill us or something like that. Right. Well, in fact, it's the inverse because uh, in Blow Up, the more he blows up the images, the more abstract they become, whereas uh, the closer he gets Gene Hackman exactly. actually clarifies the sound. It's it's the opposite. But in the other case, the characters are sort of, the, even though they've gone through this journey, this quest, they've been powerless to do anything. Although one, I find in Blow Up, it's really interesting the way that Thomas goes from being excited by the photos when he goes to Ron mm -hmm. and says, I've made, I found these beautiful pictures. Right. You know, to end this thing. Next thing, he's shocked that I stopped a murder. Yes. And, and it's almost like the horror, and I think the character actually does feel a bit of horror to realize that he witnessed a murder and had nothing yes. there was nothing he could do about it right and i think that's i think that's fascinating as far as how the, the thomas does take a little journey there mm -hmm. he doesn't learn enough from it but he takes the journey ron something fantastic's happened those photographs in the park fantastic somebody was trying to kill somebody else I saved his life. Listen, Ron, there was a girl. Ron, will you listen? What makes it so fantastic? Look, hang on, will you, Ron? There's somebody at the door. And um, that's why the, the why the ending affects me in terms of the realization of his own in some ways powerlessness to capture uh, the truth. It's not a question of even solving the way, because don't forget, uh, one of the problems people have with the film, you know, you said in your opening question, the film's a mystery. Yeah, it is. We never find out who done it, what really happened. We do know that there was somebody murdered, but we never have any idea. We can speculate all we want to because of the relationship between Vanessa Redgrave and the, the old guy. There are all kinds of speculation, but we never know, and that's deliberate. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me, from what you said about in terms of pruning back the original script, the pruning back seems to go in places that would make any of that clearer. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Uh, but it, but and it's very but much like Picnic at Hanging Rock. Uh, it's very much like La Ventura. It's just kind of an open-ended um, journey, open-ended mystery that uh, never gets solved. Well, but from the screenwriter's point of view, is whoever wrote this, and obviously Antonio was involved, and in and uh, I forgot who the other was, and the American Italian, and the, yeah, an American came in for dialogue. Um, that they knew exactly what was going on, and they had to for this to be mm -hmm. that good. Of course, they knew who killed who, why, who was the shooter, who was what was her relationship. They had that all worked out because it is so close to being figurable that it is so real that they knew all the answers, and which is wonderful. And and 
if you don't, if they didn't know the answers, this would not be that good. Well, that is interesting because uh, the the uh, greatness of the film resides in the fact if they did know that, and I think you're probably right, Jean Paul, that the very fact they avoided any of that, they cut it out, makes understanding the film well the easier without understanding what goes on in the film any easier. Uh, right, and uh, you know it's an existential mystery, and the things you know, again. I saw it when it first came out. I saw it four times the first week it came out because it's kind of back in that period of time. You go out, and the assumption was when you went out to the movies, you, you just you went out. What the hell's going on in this film? Ingmar Bergman, Fellini, uh, mm -hmm. uh, and you watch them a couple of times because you yeah you didn't know you were going to be able to see it on tape later, <laughs> right? That it was it was a you know this was a unique experience, and and you really had to puzzle it by seeing it again. When this came out, clearly it was the kind of film we were used to seeing films that you go off and really talk about and analyze afterwards. You're not so much used to that these days. And well, and it's it. Two things struck me. One was the hunt for truth, and mm -hmm. I was I think of Hemingway in the he, both as this as the hunt for truth and the fact of a good story, um, was that every day Hemingway would sit down every morning and he would write until he had a certain number of words and those had to be true words and when they were truly true words he would count them and then go on with his day and in that way he could take a <laughs> 500 page novel and he could take out the non-true words and take eight pages down to one sentence and much and a filmmaker has to do exactly this is that you do not have 800 pages or 500 pages, you've got no more than 120 minutes. It has, every moment has to be true and perfect. And definitely, to me, that's what this film does. It's also a film that when it came out, I'm sure part of the audience was sitting around going, who are these kids? Mm -hmm. And a desire to understand the kids where I'm not sure. The film is not only about the kids. The kid. The film is about life. Well, well, yeah, and that's where the people who say the film has dated because of the pop culture aspect of, of swinging London. That's not what the film's about, uh, and it is about the central problem of the character and his quest. It's not a problem that, in any century, people are still trying to get order and meaning to their lives. But that, it, that's universal. Um, in watching the film just to, the other night after maybe an eight or nine year break with the film, um, the film is familiar but somewhat universal kind of story. Uh, we all try to, and that, that's why those lines about, oh, I have all these little scattered dots here, and yet there's this line here, and it, somehow then it all hangs together. Well, no, he, actually what he was saying was, I put the dots on the, I put the, dots on the canvas, mm -hmm. and then I look for meaning. Yes. In the dots. <laughs> And definitely, I'll, but I also think that he, in different movies, he takes different kinds of characters. And this is definitely a, the story of a young man. And, the whole, and, and it's very specifically, unlike The Passenger, which is about a jaded older man, this one's about a jaded young man. And, and a lot of it, I, had, I think, has to do with youth. And, and that's why he, he hangs on the young people as to what is their world about. Oh, that's interesting. That's an interesting perspective because yeah, I think of the architect in um, La Ventura um, who's jaded and he's not 
you know, his architecture is not his passion anymore. Uh, that's true of the Richard Harris character in uh, Red Desert. He's a man who really doesn't want to take over his dad's business, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't have anything really that, you know, there's no, that's why that wonderful, you know, title Red Desert, you've got, you know, red, the color of passion, and you've got the desert, which is reddish, right. but yet it's, a, you know, a sterility. So with Antonioni, whether they're young or old, uh, there is still the kind of way of getting trying to get shape and order. In the case of the overjaded people, they've lost it. In the case of, well, at the end of this film, I think uh, the uh, Thomas character has lost it. Right. And but it's consistent with with um, Antonioni. Um, but it's, I think I, I, it's for me, this is as his main character. Although I've never been sure that the. Richard Harris is truly the main character of Red Desert. No, you're right. No, you're, Monica Mead is the main character. You're right. And what is... But once again, she's a jaded character, too. Yes. That that in each of his films, it's about jaded characters. And unlike Red, uh, Red Desert, which is a businessman, unlike The Passenger, which is an older, jaded journalist, this is a study of a young man, which I thought was really unique to this film is that this is a young man. This is a man who has not experienced life. He's never been there. I mean, he's just out of being a child and he's far richer than he should be. Oddly enough, he wants to be richer, <laughs> which, which Ron actually hits him about. But it is, it is about a young man jaded. And you were talking about uh, Richard Harris in yeah, and, and that the, that this is Antonioni's shtick. Um, it's interesting. I, I uh, uh, Antonioni, I somehow and I was wrong about this. I somehow thought he had a background in architecture because he makes such great use of buildings and space. He's very sensitive to that. But in college, he was a business and economics major. <laughs> what? And uh, uh, because he's so. I thought he had a more of a visual background before he, because uh, he makes such great use of color and space, as we've talked about, and, uh, and, and and forms. I mean, you're right, that scene when Vanessa Redgrave came up to his, his, his whatever his studio home, that the whole way all those shots are with the angles and stuff like that, not only is the room itself a great piece of design, but it's also what he does with his camera and making use of that space is incredible. And... Uh, so here was this guy who was a businessman. Uh, his background was business, or you know, trained for that. But it is interesting. Uh, he does go to young people after this film with Zabriskie Point, well, which, from a marketing standpoint, uh, MGM mishandled. Antonioni looks at America as after he's looked at England now. Then with the passenger, we also have a person who is a journalist, and he's trying to you know go after truth. Right. So there's a kind of a way of that. Truth being sort of ephemeral, certainly since Dima's first uh, question was, this film is, is is a mystery, was an unsolved mystery, and the uh, unsolvability of it, um, but then, is, is a fact of life. But then, looking at the body of his work, he may actually be saying that life is an unsolvable mystery. Yeah, since I would every that. single character, you know, has that quest, and and seems to fail. Yes. Which I, th I think that's what makes the film uh, uh, somewhat uh, universal. It's not like even with even more Bairdman, where you have that kind of everybody's looking to, for God to give an answer. 
Uh, these characters are not looking for uh, uh, things in that metaphysical way. You know, I, I've been watching it now and thinking about, um, you know, the people who call the film data because of the milieu in which it's set. And yes, there were more like existential themes going on in films in the fifties uh, and 60s, waiting for Godot and stuff like that. Yet still, the idea of the quest and this makes sense out of what we do we do with our lives is is a universal thing. I mean, whether people are young, old, whatever, uh, it's not something that's simply confined to one period of time. It might be more fashionable in one period of time uh, than other periods of time. But uh, but the other thing that makes the film great is not so much you know, the view of life it has, but the way he goes about doing it. Right. I mean, it's it's uh, it's a brilliant piece of filmmaking. Oh yeah, and all 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 through it. I mean, literally, it's a textbook. I might want to mention that one. I was lucky early on, and this is a very studio thing, and probably most likely all filmmakers of an earlier era went through this. Is learning all the techniques mm -hmm. of sound design, color, space, movement, that all of these things are important and all of them are used here. I mean, it's just such beautiful filmmaking. I must be five or six years old. They don't mean anything when I do them. Just a mess. Afterwards, I find something to hang on to. Like that. Like, like that leg. And it sorts itself out. And adds up. It's like finding a clue in a detective story. So this was a foreign film, of course, and it was released here by MGM. Um, uh, how did Blow Up fundamentally change the film industry? I don't think it did. No, I think... I, I think what he was probably more than anything else, hip movies were being made. I mean, this this was the mod era. These films were being made. He just took that formula and molded it to his ability as a filmmaker. Didn't blow up the code? Hmm? Didn't well, blow no, up the funny, code? Well, let's put it that way. That's a different. That's a different aspect of it. In that, one, it was. Oddly enough, in, in some ways, it was an American film as much as it was uh, <laughs> British. Because MGM, basically, yeah. MGM, MGM Britain is MGM. But, and and uh, Carlo Ponti, who set, who set this whole thing in motion by making the three-picture deal for Antonioni with MGM, was looking specifically to, to enter the American market. The fact that they were able to release this film, um, so this film, this film, yes, it was made with European sensibilities. There is not a lot, but there is nudity. There is a peak of a peak, tiny, tiny moment of pubic hair um, on one of the girls. I won't say whom, um, in the film, which was absolutely unique for any film ever to have been released in the United States, especially one that A, was in major theaters, came from MGM, and actually made a large profit. I think the last film like that that I saw uh, goes all the way back to The Man Who Laughs with Olga Baklanova. I think she showed some pubic hair, but that was in the 20s. 
Well, okay, you're talking pre-code. Yes. You have to remember that there's the, the code came in in 35, technically. It, the code became hard, a hard code in 1935. Prior to, and the reason for the code was, yes, there were, there, um, even Griffith was allowing his assistants to shoot orgy scenes with totally naked people. And that was okay. Mm. You know, in silent movies. There's tons and tons of nudity in silent movies. As sound came in, they went more to risque ideas and language. Dialogue, yes. And and then even that insulted certain moralistic parts of the world. By 1965, remember, one is there was this youth movement going on. Uh, the whole world had been jarred by the death of Kennedy. We, we had a war going on um, that we were not happy about. So, so when this film broke, one, there was a huge um, desire for the film by the people it was you know, aimed at. And it was successful. And that then it had these elements within it meant it was okay. Yeah, so the, that's the, what broke the code. I mean, the, that's the, the part deal. of it. A few weeks ago, when we showed John Frankenheimer Seconds, this film was shot in 66 and released here in 67. And from American audiences, um, the idea that uh, they were still doing Doris Day movies in, in here. And, and um, uh, when you had films like Arthur Penn's Mickey Wan and John Frankenheimer's Seconds, which showed some sort of awareness of the European thing, MGM, I guess, with Ponte was able to negotiate the deal. Hey, look, there's these these art house directors are great. The films are coming over here. They were making money in the art houses. There was an audience for it. So the and idea, they're in English. <laughs> yes, and then so bringing Antonioni to uh, English speaking audiences uh, was something that would make a would seem like in that period of time a really good business decision. And then in 1967, when with say like with Bonnie and Clyde the, in the Graduate that year. The, the revolution continued, but it was a good business decision on, on MGM's part. So it, it didn't revolution. In fact, MGM said, "Okay, we're gonna, we're we're going to cash in on something we see coming." Uh, or maybe Ponty talked. Well, they were it. also doing something that that was necessary. They're cashing in on the lucrative youth market. Yeah, which became much more lucrative in the '60s than it had been through the war years and the post-war years, and. I mean, pop culture is a lot about the fact of a disposable income by young people. And Did this film free up other filmmakers that came afterwards? Uh, I think it was part of. I, I wouldn't say whether pubic hair or otherwise. Movie. Yeah, the, the pubic hair is a non-issue here. The uh, the uh, the thing is that this kind of a more innovative way of telling a story did came as part of the whole way that beginning in 1967 when with movies like you know, The Graduate and Bonnie and Clyde. I mean, after all, even a film that um, Jean-Paul and I both loved, like Five Seed Pieces, still has a, a, a European sensibility to it. Uh, the switches of tone. Uh, but, but I do think, once again, the, I do think he, you're right in that the nudity itself, even though it's, it's light in some ways, um, being accepted, being big money, and making money being part of what made money for MGM, um, allowed, and I, I think it's more corporate than I would say artistic, was allowing distributors, allowing filmmakers to be freer. Yeah, same thing happened in England in 1970 with Vampire Lovers. 
Right. Well, this is also part of uh, the, the, the trick in the 60s. By the mid-60s, the studios were in chaos. Um, the, they were losing their audience to television. They needed to do something to fight television. And one of the things that television had was a much stricter code than even <laughs> the filmmakers, the film sure. motion picture code. Sure. The television code was absolutely rigid. And that, that allowed, so, so that filmmakers could now make movies that you, technically you can't show it on TV, so you have to go to see it in the theater. And, and in, in a way, that's really what they were pushing, was you're not going to see this on television. You better go see it in the theater. Well, at least not in not an unedited form. Right. I mean, they no, but, uh, show uh, films on TV just, you know, edited down. They show Taxi Driver on TV. Well, no, no. We're talking period when the, there were no films like this. You know, that, that there was stuff on television that was the same stuff you were seeing in the, in the movie theater. You know, there was comedy on television. There was comedy in the theater. This is the things that you didn't see, you couldn't see on television. Oh. You couldn't see Bonnie and Clyde being shot to death. You couldn't see any of the... These were not allowed on, in, in, a, in your home television. You also have tough characters. I mean, if you look at the difference between a movie idol and a TV idol, there's a very specific difference. The movie idol is dangerous. He's not the kind of guy that you want your daughter to hang out with. The TV idol is the guy, oh, fine, I'm happy to have him marry into my family. We're talking in the 60s because now, obviously, right, we're talking that's about, all different. Well, no, we're talking about television versus movies. In the 60s, though. In the 60s. Okay. And, of so, course, just when television came in, in the early 50s, I grew up in the generation where Cinemascope, in order to get people to come to the movies to see something different than they catch on television. So there was Cinemascope, Cinerama, 3D, all that stuff. Air conditioning. A air conditioning, and uh, rather supposed to air cooling. So that was one part of that. And then my first memory of a film where the bad guy got away with it in a film was The Thomas Crown Affair with Steve McQueen. Mm -hmm. uh, he goes flying off at the end of the thing. Wait a minute, he's a crook. And we're happy. Because uh, all the way through, you know, the, all the great Warner Brothers films where we're sort of ultimately sad when the bad guy gets it, you know, and, and uh, in the uh, Thomas Crown Affair, I am sure there are others, but it, all of a sudden, that kind of strict way, uh, we're sort of happy that Steve McQueen gets away with it in Thomas Crown Affair. And, it's, and, beats, and originally, this, this was one of the rigid things about the motion yes. picture code. So, all, you know, we, you should not show the inside of a woman's thigh, you know. Definitely, yes, Blow Up totally blew that one that this was the era in which these things will never show on television as far as they knew at the time. So you have to sit in a theater. And it was very important for distributors to get people to continue to go to, to the box office. There's no question about it, though. The, uh, the nudity here, uh, having been brought up Catholic, I can remember, though, one day, my, one of my best friends in college, freshman year of college, he was from Memphis, Tennessee. And at that point... This, the, the, the porn houses were called the art cinema. Mm. Uh, and so I never forget, it was like Easter vacation, 1958. And talk about paradox. We wanted to go movie hopping. So the same night, we went to the see 
the re-release of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, and we went to the art cinema to see And God Created Woman. <laughs> <laughs> Disney to Vadim. Yeah, it, it had. we knew we were going to get to see, see more skin than we could ever see in an American film. This is 1958. Mm-hmm. That, and so there was a kind of a way that, you know, in terms of the culture at the time, um, it, it played into it. I mean, Mark Berman played into it. I mean, you, you know, somewhere with Monica and stuff like that, of course. Uh, our, our, I still remember the whole batch of us getting together, fake IDs, to go see Teresa and Isabel. Yeah, of course. Yeah, that was <laughs> it was like Bradley Mesker's film. And yeah. again, it had the veneer of an of art film. Of an art film. film, absolutely. It was an art film. So that was sort of in the zeitgeist. So I, I, I would say, it'd be an overstatement, say, just radicalized the industry. It was all part of what the changes that were going on, and uh, and that it wasn't financial success certainly, because don't forget we're talking, but just you know, well the conversation was made what 1973. This is only yeah. six years after this, six seven years after this. So in other words, as there was the breakdown in the studio system, and the people who were part of the, you know, I keep on wanting, I give Roger Corman probably more credit than he ought to have, but I, I think it's due with these low budget films and the technique for keeping low budget films low budget the, well it's they, really dennis hopper okay dennis hopper and peter fonda easy rider yeah easy rider was, was yeah that would be more revolutionary no that was the revolution yep because that's when uh all of the big studios went oh my god look this million dollar movie right. made insane amounts of money and dragged immense amounts of young people into the movies and it actually did well in the south where they cheered the ending but it made lots of money. And this is when Universal started their whole million-dollar movie thing, where they literally they were handing out a million dollars to all these young filmmakers. And as much as Corman, who was also the New York television industry that gave us so many great filmmakers. I mean, that's yes. where Lumet, Penn, um, Frankenheimer. Frankenheimer. I mean, all of these guys came out and saved Hollywood. Yeah, it was. Um, but once again, see, they totally understood this whole idea of suddenly we've been under the under the the, the television code. We're going to Hollywood. We can make anything we want. We can put sex. We can put violence. We can put anything we want in the movie. And they did. And the movies loved that. It was so funny because uh, part of the reason there's a film that got an Oscar for Rod Steiger, maybe uh, he might have even gotten Best Picture, a Lumet film called The Pawnbroker. Mm-hmm. Big controversy. It was 1966, something like that. Big controversy because the black woman that comes into the pawn shop, uh, we see a, 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 a naked breast. Right. And and in an American film, we we did not see it until that film came along and, and under the period of time I grew up in. Well, there is the 1959 Mr. T's, but that's... <laughs> okay, well, yeah, in the film that got... Yeah, right. But, although there was it, Russ Meyer, It yes. made a million dollars. But not all the countries saw it, and it wasn't a major distributor. It's only when the major distributors saw that sex and violence were just as good as love and drama. So to a certain extent, um, not just a question of the nudity and the pubic hair demo uh, on this, in terms, but also in terms of the enigmatic quality of the film, where this is you know, one of the things, we weren't used to seeing a film as enigmatic as this, in terms of what the hell's going on here. But as you get into movies like The Conversation, some other kind of parallax views, stuff like that, you do get, you know, uh, there's a kind of a, a way that directors push the envelope on the kinds of stories they could tell. It wasn't just in terms of violence and sex, but that was certainly part of it. 
but get away with a little bit more ambiguity. But this is, it was part of all of that. And of course, it was a coup. I mean, there were a lot of people, don't forget, there was a, on the one hand, they tried to bring Ingmar Bergman to America. He made a bad film with Elliot Gould and uh, B.B. Anderson of The Touch. It was a bad film. Yeah. Thank God Bergman retreated to Scandinavia. Uh, but that is true. This is really one of the first European directors making a film in Europe that mm -hmm. really was an Amer which worked as an American film. I mean, it worked as a contemporary American film as far as the audience was concerned. And that is true. Although, once again, remember, as far as the nudity, up to this point, Antonioni had not done that. In right. some ways, by going to England, it freed him up, walking out of Catholic Italy, which also had strict controls over certain things. Funny, after I saw this film, I, I've seen, I haven't seen a lot of Ventura in 20 or 30 years, but there's a whole scene that was named Gabriel Frazetti, who plays the, uh, the architect, and Monica Vitti on a couch. And you know they're, they're something in whatever resort hotel they're in. And wait a minute, there's no nudity here. I, <laughs> I ended up being disappointed. I thought, but there was, you don't see it. And uh, I think in terms of what I might have thought I saw when I first saw the film, yeah, there's no, no, there's no nudity. And so, yeah, um, it's it, it, it clearly blew up as you know, a significant film in a gazillion different ways uh, when it came out. And it got more Americans probably who yeah you probably reached a broader non-art house audience than uh other films had but any in, of the european films yes, yes definitely i mean as and, far as the new wave this was definitely more successful than a new wave film but still the subjects matter of other films there was close to it in some of the i mean here's a british film and, and JP and I, we will joke about uh some of the some of the the, the mod london things you know but I never forget the. Uh, I thought I always thought Susanna York and and uh, uh, when we talk about Judy Geese and uh, Sarah Miles were all hot. And I think I'd probably go to see a film with Susanna York, uh, The Killing of Sister George, a few years later. Oh yeah, that scene where uh, Carol Brown is plucking on 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 Susanna York's nipples. That's a hot scene. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> and, uh, well, that's true. Yes, the British. Probably more. Than, we're much looser about nude nude breasts than m most people. Post nineteen seventy, not Post before. No, but you know, even in this era, they were starting to get into it. There's the L shaped room, which I you know, there were a lot of the kitchen, well, there were the kitchen sink films, right? Of uh, of okay, so we're not talking this. about exploitation films. Yes, oh, not no, no. Well, no. remember exploitation films up to a certain point. Once again, this is. They had they had their legitimate rules they had to play by, but yes, the independent the kitchen sink films were had had freedoms. Although, um, yeah, no, I mean, basically by the seventies everybody had nude breasts. Yeah, I mean, uh, Pete Walker made a whole series of films with lots of nudity, lots of lots of sex, lots of uh, erotica. Well, my my favorite my one of my favorite actresses is Edwidge Fennick. The Italian actor. Edwiga Fenich, yes. Who is just, you know, A, she is as fun, she is as good as Marilyn Monroe as far as... She made Jallos, though. That was, uh, she was in Italy. Right, but she yeah. was a, a superb comedian. I mean, she, Was she? Oh, God. The, uh, uh, I'll show you a film. Uh, okay. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's about a widow with everybody consoling her. What's the name of it? I, 
I couldn't tell you right off the top of my head. Okay. It is hysterical, and she is so good. Hmm. I mean, she has incredible timing, even when she's naked. <laughs> so, well, which is probably most of the time. Uh, hmm? Look, I, Tommy is important when you're naked. Uh, oh yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, that's what the women say. Guys that don't, most guys don't understand that. Uh, hopefully, so hopefully, how many dirty old men are going to see Baywatch this weekend? Uh, I guess that the movie is totally tanked. Uh, uh, yeah, I've heard. This I story. haven't even heard of that one. Oh, uh, Baywatch. Baywatch, the television show, is now Baywatch the movie. Oh my God. With. Um, I haven't even heard of it. Zach, Zach uh, that's, what's his name? That's how... the Friday to and, uh, Disaster Dwayne, Studios. Dwayne, The Rock Jay Johnson. Jay Johnson, yeah. Okay. The Rock. I am looking forward to seeing Wonder Woman, actually. I have to admit. I'm not. I, I, that sounds good to me. I'm interested. No, people, the reviews are generally positive, yeah. Yeah. I, I, it's low on my list, but... Uh, I don't like superhero movies, typically, but I well, do I, want I to actually, see that one. I actually have a... I would go partly to support the fact that Apparently, all of the female superhero movies have not done well over the years. That this one looks like it might be good enough to get get a, some excitement about it. Yeah, they're expecting it this weekend to do sixty five million dollars. Well, there haven't been any female superheroes in recent years, have there? Supergirl, they did. That's a TV show. No, I thought they tried to film a few years ago. Did they? Yeah, tanked. I there have been a couple. That, that okay, have, I wasn't aware of that. Catwoman didn't do that much better. It wasn't that good a movie, but right. um, they've tried. Well, I'm glad this one is getting good reviews. Yeah. So anyway. Um, the, I'm yeah. assuming that we're not recording any of this stuff. I've well, no, we are. It is recording. No, we but are. We should, we should probably wrap this up. Yeah. yeah. Unless you have, um, do we have any more questions? No, this was a great conversation. I think I, I, I learned think a lot. I think you can edit it to get some uh, sense I out think, of it. I yeah. think, you know, I, you know, you guys just, I just kind of let you guys talk, which is wonderful. Well, this is, this is truly... Truly, it is a great film. People should watch it. If you're a filmmaker, you have to watch it. Yes. If you definitely. want to be a filmmaker, and also if you want to really understand how movies are made, is this is a really, really good film to show all the craft that can go into making a film that tells a good story. Definitely. It's, it's, it's not just, there's an aesthetic here. There's no question about it. If, you know, when you talk about your point of view thing, there's Thomas's camera, and then there's Antonioni's camera, and just simply the. I love the fact I had forgotten how little, how minimalistic the film is in terms of dialogue. That um, here it is, extremely well written film, but it doesn't rely on the normal dimension, uh, the normal conventions of how to tell a story. Uh, and it's just, I think it's a brilliant piece of filmmaking. It's very cinematic. Now, now, would you call this an auteur film? Of course, yes. Whereas I would say it's it it it's a brilliant studio film, i.e., every craftsman, every artist involved, gave it their all, and each one brought brilliance. Well, British craftsmen are brilliant by definition, British film craftsmen. But nobody else could have made this film except Antonioni. I don't think so. No, this truly is this. His this vision. is his film. Yeah. yeah. So for, so it, it is an a tourist film. Right. From that well, point. that's that's why I like the, the, I'm telling JP you ought to go see this movie called The Finest, uh, and it's about screenwriters. The heroes of the film are the screenwriters. Right. But uh, in the process of the film that they make, uh, you everybody, the editors, everybody else gets into the act in terms of you know you really do see the thing as a collaborative process, mm. 
And um, it's so funny because everybody I've talked to, uh, people have seen it, are surprised that I went to see it in the first place. And it was a great film. And uh, not a great film as film, but um, just, it's certainly at this point. It's a great story is what you're saying. Yeah. And, but it's also a well done great story. Right. Beautifully acted, uh, beautifully shot. I would say, you know, again, I said this the other night. My favorite, I think my candidate for best film of the year is Get Out. My candidate for the best film, like Blow Up, that tells a story through the resources of cinema uniquely is Personal Shopper. And the, the film I like the best this year is Their Finest. So, uh, i.e., the, the best, the most entertainment. Oh, fine. I loved it. I just yeah. loved it. I laughed, I cried, you know, <laughs> uh, those kinds of things that... Um, it's a wonderful, wonderful film, mm -hmm. uh, and I'm a, I, it may not make my ten best list at the end of the year, but right. it's just a wonderful film, uh, and I'm so glad that some people have seen it. And again, especially because of the subject matter about how films get made, and the whole writing process, you, I, you just get a kick out of it more than a lot of people would. I mean, I haven't seen it, and I will. And, I promise. Well, it's the kind of film that probably was just low enough on the radar screen, so. And, you know, enough people said, you got to go see it. And that's why I took the ride out there to see it the other day and mm -hmm. said, shit, I've taken the ride. Uh, um, I felt it was important enough to see, and I'm glad I did. And on that note, I want to thank you, gentlemen. This was a great conversation. Uh, yes, it was. I, I totally enjoyed it. This is this. one of the better ones. I, I really like this. I enjoyed this. Well, I, thank you for having me. And I learned here. a lot. you enjoyed our heated discussion of Michelangelo Antonioni's Blow Up. Please join us again next time when we discuss Tarkovsky's Stalker, which will be a brand new Criterion release at that point. So I hope you join us. Mm -hmm.